Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. We learned in school that George Washington led a ragtag army against the greatest army in the world, the British Army. So he led this ragtag army, he overcame the oppression of the British throne, he became president of the United States, then he went home to Mount Vernon and lived out the rest of his life as a peaceful country farmer gentleman. That was the Mount Vernon that they teach in school, especially to white children, that you might resist tyranny and you might still survive. But for us, we had no Mount Vernon. They wanted to show us, if you resist white tyranny, white oppression, you will die. That's civil rights leader Robert F. Williams speaking the truth. History is written by the victors, the survivors, the oppressors, the people who own the printing presses and decide what's taught in school. Black Americans are taught that our ancestors were docile, childlike beings who were too incompetent to find a way out of slavery. We're taught that nonviolent protest and forgiveness are the only ways we can achieve our goal of liberation, a liberation that can only be granted by benevolent white people. On one hand, we're supposed to celebrate the white so-called heroes of the American Revolution who used force and violence to stand up against British oppression and fight for their independence. But on the other hand, we're supposed to feel no love for freedom fighters such as Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. And what about Fred Hampton, the chairman of the Black Panther Party and legendary Chicago organizer, founder of one of the first multicultural political organizations, the Rainbow Coalition. A man of tremendous vision and deep love for his community. A man who was so effective the FBI and the Chicago PD assassinated him in his bed as his children slept in December 1969. Fred Hampton has been dropped down the memory hole of American culture. Today on Push Black's Black History Year, we reveal the truth about how black folks have risen up against depression and why that matters to our lives today. There are hundreds of documented revolts by enslaved people in America. However, only a handful of them can be classified as successful. We're going to take a quick look at some of those and then we'll dive deep into the most successful rebellion of all. The one that gave hope to every black person in the world at the time. The one that they didn't want us to know about back then and they damn sure don't want us to know about now. I'm Jay from Push Black. Around here, it's always Black History Year. Fifteen twenty-six, only 34 years after Columbus lands in the Americas. A group of white explorers formed a colony in the area where Georgetown, South Carolina now sits. They arrived with about 100 enslaved Africans who came straight from Africa and recalled vividly what it meant to be free. 
Things started going left for the colony almost immediately. Starvation, disease, isolation. Perfect conditions to create the gap that the Africans could exploit. They set the settlement ablaze and teamed up with neighboring Native Americans who were already fed up with the terrorism of white invaders. This collaboration led to the burning down of much of the town. The blacks left the ruins of the settlement behind to live the rest of their lives as free people with their First Nation collaborators. Middle 1500s, Mexico. A prince from Gabon is enslaved and, with thousands of other Africans, pressed into labor in the brutal Mexican sugarcane fields. His response to his enslavement was swift and determined. Here's author and filmmaker Henry Louis Gates Jr. telling the story on his documentary series, Black in Latin America. In 1570, 50 years before the Mayflower landed at Plymouth Rock, Gaspar Yanga and several other men and women not only ran away from slavery, but spent 30 years hiding out in the mountains around Veracruz, attacking the Spanish in guerrilla raids and defending their community. The Spanish never could subdue them. Finally, in 1609, the Spanish admitted defeat and offered Yanga his own independent town in exchange for peace. Yanga's settlement became what some scholars believe to be the very first town founded by free black people in all of the Americas. Gaspar Yanga starts a resistance, keeps a European colonial power at bay, and then negotiates an independent region. I don't know about you, but I didn't learn about Gaspar Yanga in school. All of these revolts struck fear in the whites who wanted to maintain the status quo. But none can compare to the mother of all black revolts, the revolt that changed the game forever. The one that led to ramifications that are still felt to this day. The one that made the most feared military leader of the time, Napoleon, tremble in his boots. The Haitian Revolution. During the 1700s, France prospered off the labor of enslaved black people. Haiti, known then as Saint-Domingue, was the wealthiest European colony in the world because its resource-rich land produced sugar, coffee, and indigo. Some estimate that 20% of France's wealth came from this colony. There were nearly half a million slaves on Saint-Domingue, massively outnumbering the white slaveholders. To keep the blacks at bay, the whites created a buffer class of mixed-race people who were the offspring of sexual exploitation of black women by white men. And this constant arrival of new Africans to Saint-Domingue preserved the connections to West African languages and traditions. Enslaved Africans in Saint-Domingue were constantly reminded about who they were, where they came from, and what freedom meant. This was also the period of the European Enlightenment, so there's a bunch of ideas of liberty in the air. France had adopted the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which ensured that men are born and remain free 
and equal in rights. This idea of enlightenment paired with a group of black folks who were fed up with oppression and knew exactly what freedom meant set the stage for what would be the largest slave revolt in the hemisphere. The Haitian blacks had a long history of small rebellions against white slaveholders, and they were about to take it to a whole nother level. To fill this in, we're going to turn to a guy I've known for years, Dr. Brandon Byrd. Dr. Byrd is a historian and the author of The Black Republic, African Americans and the Fate of Haiti. We'll link to it in the show notes. This book offers a fascinating view into the very complicated place that Haiti has held in the minds of black folks from independence to W.B. Du Bois and through today. Dr. Byrd, great to have you with us. So could you describe the conditions that set the stage for the Haitian Revolution? Yes, absolutely. So generally speaking, uh, the conditions that set the stage for the Haitian Revolution are similar to the conditions uh, that confronts Black and enslaved people throughout the rest of the Americas. They are similar, but they're also in many ways amplified. And Saint-Domingue, which is the French colony that's post-independence becomes Haiti. So Saint-Domingue on the eve of the Haitian Revolution is uh, it's a majority enslaved population. That's, uh, there's approximately 500,000 or so enslaved people, approximately 50,000 or so uh, Europeans and European Americans, and about 50,000 or so uh, Jean de Color, uh, free people of color. Uh, so, I mean, you see the stark disparities right there. This is a slave society through and through. It's one in which the majority of the world's uh, sugar will come from. Uh, the world's coffee comes from Haiti. It's the most profitable stretch of land on earth, really, right? And it's all built on the brutalization of those enslaved people. Planters in Saint-Domingue had essentially done the calculus. They had essentially done the math, and they concluded that it was more profitable to basically work enslaved people to death than it was to keep them alive. And so that enslaved population is a majority African population uh, because uh, enslaved people are, it's basically this, this cycle of death. They are brought in to work, to die, and more enslaved Africans are brought in. So these are the conditions, right? That it is a is a brutal slave society, is one in which we see the excesses of how slavery and capitalism work together, that all of these profits of sugar and coffee are built quite literally on the backs uh, of enslaved people. And again, those enslaved people is a majority African population. With this constant influx of folks from Africa, that creates a different dynamic than the system of slavery that existed in America, didn't it? So, yeah, as you point out, right, uh, there are differences among slave societies. In a large section of colonial mainland British North America and then what becomes the United States, enslaved populations are reproducing themselves, right? A lot of that has to do with very violent uh, processes of, you know, as we put it, you know, very crassly in the terms that enslavers uh, talked about it, breeding, right? These are things that scholars like uh, Dana Raymond Berry have showed uh, that that reproduction is intentional. And again, it's a very violent process. Part of that structure in mainland British North America, what becomes the United States of a reproducing population is in part due to tobacco is less taxing of a crop to produce than sugar. 
that the disease environments are more conducive to sustaining human life uh, than they are in the Caribbean plantation societies. So those sorts of things, right? But to your question about what effect that that sort of cycle of death and importation has on uh, Saint-Domingue and the slave society there, uh, when we talk about the slave uh, revolution, the Haitian revolution, the slave revolution, we have to talk about it as a decidedly African revolution, right? Like we can locate, at times it's very difficult to locate these enslaved people in a specific locale, uh, but generally speaking, we know that many of them are Congolese. So in thinking about how the Haitian Revolution is conducted from a military standpoint, uh, we have to look at uh, the conduct of war in the Congo during the era of the transatlantic slave trade. That is how many of these enslaved rebels are informed about how to go about uh, conducting warfare. We talk about the spiritual and cultural beliefs, right, that influence uh, just even uh, that, that drive towards insurrection. We have to talk about those as African and specifically Congolese uh, influences, right? Uh, the Haitian Revolution begins in August uh, 1791 with a uh, Vodou ceremony. It begins with an invocation of African deities with uh, this idea, this claim that enslaved people had to forget the God of uh, Europeans and had to strike a blow against slavery based upon uh, their affiliation uh, with these African deities. So it's really all about um, the Haitian Revolution demands that we reorient our understanding of the political, right? The history of the modern West, at least politically, is a history of uh, European and Euro-American politics and political ideas. Uh, The Haitian Revolution requires us to pivot uh, towards a question of, well, how did uh, African uh, spiritualities, African uh, epistemologies, ways of knowing, how did those influence the politics of the West? It, It requires a whole reframing. What should we look to, then, as the catalyst for the start of the Haitian Revolution? Yeah, it's a great question. So, in many ways, like, the the standard explanation of the catalyst for much of the 20th century was really that uh, the Haitian Revolution is a part of the French Revolution. It was an extension of the French Revolution. That the catalyst was really 1789, you have the beginning of a French Revolution, founded on these ideas of liberty, fraternity, and equality. First, free people of color demand rights based upon uh, the happenings in the French Revolution, based upon the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, uh, that they claim equal rights for themselves. They say that uh, they deserve it just as much as uh, Europeans and Euro-Americans. And it's out of that contest between uh, free people of color and uh, white Frenchmen that then enslaved people use that opportunity to assert their own claims to freedom. So that's the sort of typical uh, explanation for the catalyst. But more recently, uh, scholars have really unearthed a more uh, bottom-up and more grassroots history of the Haitian Revolution, especially uh, the catalyst for it, right? Uh, So it's much more attuned to what you point at now. Uh, Well, what are the histories of slave insurrection preceding the Haitian Revolution? What are these histories of maroon communities and what do they tell us about the Haitian Revolution? Uh, Because there is this longer trajectory of uh, marunage, 
right? There is this longer trajectory, uh, certainly, of enslaved people. Again, emphasizing the point, many of them African, of resisting slavery in ways that do not appropriate European ideas of liberty and equality, but instead assert their own uh, African understandings of what freedom looks like. You know, it's certainly based upon this understanding of uh, rights and a right to have rights. And as a fundamental part of that, a right to not be enslaved. Uh, and it's also based, though, on what then freedom will look like. So that history of Maranaj clues us into, uh, for many of these enslaved folks, and particularly these African enslaved folks, freedom has to look like some communitarianism, for example, right? Like freedom is not tied into you know, this individualism as it is with, you know, those European understandings that is based upon uh, belonging to a community, right? And that takes very tangible forms and uh, the maintenance of uh, small collective plots of land, the laku, right? It takes the form in uh, ideas of popular democracy, right? So, uh, you know, to, to your question about the, the catalyst, right? Again, it's back to this point about uh, African ways of knowing. African understandings of what uh, freedom looks like and uh, how those ideas are rooted in idea of the collective. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. So if communitarianism and African-rooted ideals of freedom are showing up as revolutionary sparks, this gives us a decidedly non-Eurocentric set of catalysts. It's less an expression of acquired European ideals and more a continuation of African culture. But back to the story. What should we know to have a good grounding in what actually happened in the Haitian Revolution? So in the summer of 1791, you have the real beginnings or emergence of a new stage in slave insurrection, maybe a better way to put it, uh, in Saint-Domingue, uh, the beginnings of what becomes known as the Haitian Revolution. And this uh, begins in the north of Haiti around um, uh, present-day uh, Capetian, and it very quickly... Uh, becomes a colony-wide phenomenon. Enslaved people burning plantations, striking a, a literal direct blow to this plantation economy that has the heart of the plantation economy uh, of the Americas and the world, right? This revolution very quickly is seen, this uprising is seen as certainly a destabilizing force for the French. It's seen as an opportunity but, uh, for other imperial, imperial powers. Uh, so, Almost from the outset, from uh, the summer 1791, the British see this as an opportunity. They invade Saint-Domingue, right? Uh, the Spanish see this as an opportunity. They ally with enslaved folks. Most famously, Toussaint Louverture begins uh, first as an ally uh, of the Spanish. That allegiance ends, actually, 1793, 1794, when the French concede to emancipation, when they concede to the demands of the enslaved people who, you know, were striking a blow against slavery. At that point, uh, Toussaint Louverture allies with the French. Uh, he becomes uh, the governor general of the colony of Saint-Domingue and effectively governs it as an uh, independent, a sovereign entity. 
that's a problem. Uh, you know, as we can see for some of some of these imperial powers, it doesn't sit well. Uh, certainly, with the French, it doesn't sit well with European and American sovereign powers uh, for whom a a, a formerly enslaved man uh, and a formerly enslaved people who had destabilized the plantation economy and destabilized the racial hierarchies upon which uh, these plantation economies were built, that that was not something that was going to necessarily sit well. And so that's what really leads in my 1802 when Napoleon uh, has consolidated his power in France. He makes a uh, essentially removes uh, Toussaint Louverture uh, from power by some uh, subterfuge, by basically acting as if this was an instance where these two leaders were going to uh, parlay. He ends up uh, extraditing uh, Toussaint Louverture from uh, the colony of Saint-Domingue uh, to uh, France, where Toussaint Louverture will die in the Fort de Joux. At that point, the Haitian Revolution uh, really becomes a war for independence and, and it enters the new stage where Toussaint Louverture's former generals, including Jean-Jacques Dessalines, that they then move from uh, their allegiance uh, with France. And there's some complexities there, right? So they had they had sided with France, basically waited an opportunity to shift the power dynamics, right? Uh, so for the time being, before that opportunity arose, they had sided with France. After the uh, extradition and death of Toussaint Louverture, these former generals, including Jean-Jacques Dessalines, uh, lead what then again becomes a war for independence. Uh, that independence is achieved on January 1st, 1804. Jean-Jacques Dessalines declares uh, the ends of slavery, the end of French colonialism, declares the literal death of Saint-Domingue, says this is now A.E.T. Right, a return to the name of pre-colonial Saint-Domingue, uh, the name that the indigenous people knew it by. And so that, that, that's generally speaking how the Haitian Revolution unfolds. The end of it is just monumental. It, it's hard to overstate what that meant to have a, a black state declared, a black state in the middle. You just look, you know, visualize a map of the Americas at that time, right? It is colonies that are part of slaveholding empires. It's an independent United States whose constitution allowed not just for maintenance of slavery, but actually an expansion of slavery, right? And then you have a black state whose existence is founded upon anti-slavery, on anti-racism, on anti-colonialism, right? Again, it's hard to overstate the importance of that. And this had to send shockwaves into America and around the world. Yeah, yeah. Even as the revolution is ongoing, uh, rumors, gossip, information about it are spreading like wildfire throughout the Black Americas. Black sailors who are moving about port cities, including Port-au-Prince, Charleston, Baltimore, you know, other ports throughout the Caribbean, et cetera, uh, that they are spreading information about it. As you can imagine, it's inspirational. That this idea that oh, enslaved people that is striking a blow for freedom, it catches on like that. Uh, and so when when Haiti declares its independence in 1804, it's not necessarily a we 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 can't identify that as the moment when you know Haiti takes on international meaning. It's more so that it uh, cements uh, this meaning, right? Because again, in many ways, the significance of the insurrection 
is identified even before the Declaration of Independence. So when the revolution succeeds and leads to independence, right, that just amplifies its meaning. Just to take the African-American example, uh, that Declaration of Independence, it's... uh, it makes Haiti synonymous with a range of things. It makes uh, Haiti synonymous with abolition and emancipation. It makes uh, Haiti synonymous with uh, racial equality. We have an independent black state. It is the second independent state in the Americas. Its declaration is the second formally written uh, declaration in the Americas, right? That it is uh, on par with the United States, a a republic that is almost from its initial founding self-identifying as white, right? So Haiti stands in not only for abolition and emancipation, but also racial equality. For many African-Americans, it's not only an abstract idea of freedom, but it's quite literally a site of freedom. Uh, From basically the first six decades or so of the 19th century, thousands of African-Americans, at least 12,000, uh, almost certainly more uh, African-Americans go to Haiti. They pick up, they leave. I say that socioeconomically, politically, uh, black life in the United States is unsustainable. And Haiti will have access to land, to political rights, to civil rights, to more freedom of expression, to dignity. And so they go there. This is a meaning uh, ascribed to Haiti that and uh, to a previous point, it's difficult to, to overestimate. It is a literal site of freedom for thousands of African-Americans, right? It is a, a place that African-Americans identify both symbolically and in reality as a place where uh, Black people can uh, achieve things impossible throughout the rest of the world. Amazing. Now, that was the Black reaction. What was the white reaction? Generally speaking, much different. Uh, you did so. We will. Uh, we can give a, a quick shout out to uh, some white abolitionists who, and these were folks like, well, well, certainly not only militant abolitionists like uh, John Brown, but even John Brown's son, John Brown Jr., who not only celebrate Toussaint Louverture as this respectable model of abolitionism, right, but who. Some of them, and this is a small population of white abolitionists, who say the Haitian Revolution is a sign that violence works. That it is not only a symbol of racial equality, but it is also a sign for what we in the United States should be willing to do to achieve emancipation for our black brethren in the United States. So again, that's a small population of abolitionists, of white abolitionists who either celebrated Toussaint Louverture or who went so far as to say that the Haitian Revolution should be emulated. So small segment. Uh, for the most part of the white American population, the Haitian Revolution really stands in for a number of evils, right? This idea of the horrors of Saint-Domingue basically becomes a catch-all word for uh, the fear of slave insurrection in the United States. Uh, And that fear of slave insurrection in the United States is tied into the horrors of Saint-Domingue, is tied into uh, the Haitian Revolution. How that manifests itself in the material world is through, first, the non-recognition of Haiti, 
basically from 1804 to 1862, uh, the United States government refused this to grant diplomatic recognition to Haiti in large part due to the influence of Southern slaveholders in the U.S. government who say, we can't recognize it. Because if we recognize Haiti, that validates slave insurrection. It will also lead uh, literally to black diplomats in Washington, D.C. And we don't want that. Materially, it also leads to uh, a really significant argument for secession on the eve of the U.S. Civil War. Confederates are trying to drum up support for the Confederacy. They travel, you know, quite literally travel themselves or they uh, move uh, pro-secession documents throughout the South that are essentially making the argument that if we do not separate from the United States, then we're going to have another Haiti here in the U.S. That if we remain here, that eventually what this is going to lead to is another horse of Saint-Domingue in our defense. So it's a really significant uh, rhetorical move that does have the effect, along with other arguments, but does have the effect of drumming up support for Southern secession. So generally speaking, there, there's certainly a difference between the ways in which Black Americans view the Haitian Revolution as inspiration and the way that many white Americans uh, view it as a, as a real problem. My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. That divergence of view, white and black America seeing the same thing very differently, is kind of the story of our lives, isn't it? It seems like the Haitian Revolution is particularly weighed down because its significance crosses so many lines. So I think when we approach history writ large, right, there's the fundamental question about whose perspective do we approach history from? Do we approach history from the perspective of the colonizer, the colonized, the enslaver, the enslaved, right? And I think oftentimes we are given the idea, well, you know, Ideally, you approach it, uh, quote-unquote, objectively from the, the viewpoint of a variety of perspectives, right? The Haitian Revolution, I think the, the, probably the most important meaning, if I had to identify one takeaway, is the value, the need, the push to assess history from the perspective of the enslaved, the colonized, the downtrodden, the oppressed. If we do that from the perspective of Haitian revolutionaries, in particular the masses that drove the Haitian revolution, but even, even the early leaders of the Haitian state, right? What we're really left with is one of the most powerful messages in world history, right? We are left with a revolution that is explicitly anti-colonial, that is explicitly anti-slavery. That is also, again, striking a blow against uh, systems of capitalism that are tied into systems of slavery. So it's a revolution that gives us really revolutionary messages, right, to state a really obvious point, but point that we really have to appreciate by 
grappling with the Haitian Revolution on its own terms and really appreciate the value of understanding history, not from this quote-unquote object, objectivity, but from the perspective of the enslaved and the oppressed themselves. When we do that, what we're really left with is one of the most profound declarations and messages of human rights and humanity and equality in world history. You know, I can't think of a more profound example. Yeah, the Haitian Revolution still messes people up. I have this ridiculous clip of white Christian televangelist Pat Robertson claiming that the Haitians' use of traditional African spiritual systems was actually a deal with the devil. He even went as far as to say that this was the reason they were devastated in 2010 by the earthquake. Christy, something happened a long time ago in Haiti, and people might not want to talk about it. They were under the heel of the French, uh, you know, Napoleon III and whatever. And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. It's a true story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And uh, they kicked the French out. You know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by, by one thing after the other, desperately poor. That island of- It's just eerie how the simple statement, throw away the likeness of the white man's God, led Robertson to jump to a conclusion as extreme as making a pact with the devil. It indicates that he believes the white man's God is the only God there is. The inhumanity of Robertson's statement is almost impossible. Like, it's so hard to process, right? That he, he gives this statement after the 2010 earthquake, you know, where hundreds of thousands of Haitians have uh, either died or lost access to uh, the things needed to sustain life, housing medical care, food, water. He comes out and says that the earthquake is a consequence of the Haitian Revolution. That is because Haitians made a pact with the devil in securing their freedom that they now suffered this cataclysmic disaster. So again, the inhumanity is uh, it's almost impossible to fathom, right? You can only say that sort of thing if at some fundamental degree you do not believe that Haitians that black people occupy the same category of humanity as you. But I think what that statement speaks to is not only Robertson's just uh, deeply, deeply rooted prejudices, uh, but it also speaks to uh, the ways in which the Haitian Revolution is so difficult to process for first in the moment that it's happening for Europeans and Euro-Americans, but then even afterwards for countless Europeans, Euro-Americans, and Americans, right? That they can't process it on its own terms. That this event, the Haitian Revolution, is, uh, to take the words of uh, this historian, Laurent Dubois, is uh, the greatest assertion of human rights in world history. That's assertion of the right to have rights and the most fundamental right being the right to not be enslaved, which is a right that all humans uh, possess, right? So in reality, this should be a revolution that everybody would want to claim. But enslavers and their descendants have a difficulty processing on those terms uh, because it's a revolution that strikes a blow, not just against colonialism, but also slavery, also against racism, also against uh, the systems 
uh, of uh, capitalism and uh, economics that all those systems of racialism and colonialism are tied up into, right? That it's a revolution that happens because of African ways of understanding the world. That it's a revolution that happens due to the agency of African people who are supposed to lack agency. So they can't process it. So if you can't process a revolution on its own terms, then what do you do? And you make up ideas about why this revolution happened, right? Uh, So then the rationalizations that come to stand in are that the revolution happens uh, strictly because uh, enslaved people wanted uh, revenge, right? Well, you know, they definitely... uh, uh, they, there was no love loss between them and their enslavers, right? But they also want, again, as we've talked about, they also want freedom on their own terms. So they have a worldview that goes beyond certainly just uh, striking a blow against the man, right? Uh, that they understand what freedom should mean. Other excuses that come to stand in, back to Robertson, are that, you know, well, this revolution is just about, you know, some, uh, that it's barbaric that it's evidence of uh, savagery, that it's evidence of, uh, you know, you know, these superstitious forces, you know, which again, it's just evidence of having to come up with some rationalization for this event that you cannot process. And this noise can distract us from the key points that are so clear when we look at these revolutions. In every case, they were black movements. They organized around their group identity. Their goal was extremely clear and unwavering. When they formed coalitions, they were intentional about who they allowed to be their allies. Their vision of justice was on their own terms, and they took action when the conditions were right. These elements are immediately transferable to our lives today and how we organize in our communities, at work, for elections, everywhere. Dr. Burr, Thanks for being on Black History Year. So I appreciate Push Black for having me on. This was, this was great, and I appreciate the work that y'all are doing. Again, we'll have this in the show notes, but Dr. Bird's book is titled The Black Republic, African Americans, and the Fate of Haiti, recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. Black History Year is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. Production support from Michael L. Sesser and Lemina House. Obviously, the power that comes from knowing our history is important to you. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take this into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or 10 bucks a month but everything truly makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.